Welcome to the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, where it's all about slashing your debt and taxes and creating a liberated lifestyle. And now, your host, with a love of fantasy books and funk, and a hatred of running more than three miles, Dave Denniston. Well, we would like to thank our sponsor, Empath IQ. Empath IQ provides healthcare reputation management for individuals, providers, practices, and medical facilities. Boost positive reviews, respond to negative feedback, and take control of your online presence. Go to www.empathiq.io or call 858 858- 375-5686 and mention financial freedom to receive two months for free. Again, that's Empath IQ, E-M-P-A-T-H-I-Q dot I-O. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to another episode of the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping doctors like you slash your debt, slash your taxes, and live a liberated lifestyle. Well, I know I am a sucker for great entrepreneurial stories, and today I have the pleasure of having a Canadian here with us to talk about his journey and his struggles, he and two other physicians founded an EMR record provider called Arya. Arya, he'll correct me if I got that wrong. Arya EHR. And um, I'm looking forward to learning about his journey, talking about maybe some differences between US and Canadian medicine and and the record keeping and all that kind of stuff. So we can learn from him. Please help me welcome to the show, Dr. Rich Stramko. Welcome, Rich. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Dave. Yeah, man. Glad, glad to have you. So I know we were talking pre-chat. You're living in Toronto right now. Are you from Canada originally? Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm born and raised in Canada. Spent, spent a fair amount of time down in the States, both for work and studies, um, but definitely Canadian through and through. And so was it Toronto that you were from? Yeah, I'm from a small town actually southwest of Ontario called Simcoe. It was a great place to grow up. And I actually came, came through Hamilton and Toronto, spent some time out in BC and in San Francisco, but now I've settled down in the Toronto Hamilton area. So tell me about uh, growing up in, in a small town like you did. Uh, was were either of your parents physicians? You know, tell me about. No, my dad. Up. My dad was a fisheries biologist, and my mom was a teacher. She was an English teacher and a parenting teacher. And you know, Simcoe was a town of about fifteen thousand people, really close knit community, like an amazing place to grow up. A uh, lot, you know, played a lot of uh, sports growing up, did a lot of music and stuff. And it was, it was such a great place um, just because, you know, it was such a close community. Everybody knew what was going on. People were really friendly, um, but no, no immediate physician, um, physician influences kind of growing up. So how, tell me about the journey of, of being a young kid growing up in a small town, dad working for a fishery to, to going to medical school. You know, how, how did you come about that? Yeah, I got pretty sick when I was 15. I had some uh, some stomach intestinal issues and I had a bunch of operations and, um, you know, required a lot of medical interventions. And that's basically where I was first uh, inspired to get into medicine. There was a, 
a pediatric surgeon named Mark Walton, who's actually, you know, quite a big wig at McMaster University now, but he was such a kind person and would just crack jokes coming into the room, put your mind totally at ease. Just a wonderful, wonderful guy. And uh, I was, I was 16 and I was like, you know what, if I could do what this guy does, I would be, be super happy about that. And kind of as time went on, one of my uh, good friends, fathers in, in Simcoe, his name was uh, Nabi Matter. Unfortunately, he's passed away now, but he was an incredible guy as well. He, so he was a general surgeon in this small town and he could do anything like mm. he would take appendixes out. He would do cancer operations. He would fix your hip and do orthopedic surgeries. He would, you know, do bronchoscopies, which is, you know, doing lung diagnostic procedures. He would do simple things and complex things and, and really like kind of carried the entire community on his shoulders. Like just an incredible guy, you know, very very big personality, obviously, to, mm. to kind of do all that stuff in the, the small town. And so I actually got to do some, um, some rotations with him when I was just finished university, which is pretty rare, right? Like you don't get those opportunities very often when you're just a university student to get to go into operating rooms and follow this, this larger than life character around. And, and that really sealed the deal for me. I was like, I definitely want to get into medicine after having that, that experience. How great. What a, what a great story and, and being inspired to get into medicine. So um, tell me about the, the process of getting into medical school. You know, is it, is it like here in the U.S. where you do kind of four years of undergrad, then go to medical school? What, what yeah, was it like for you? Yeah, totally. Um, you know, it's very, very similar process. You can do three or four years of undergrad and obviously you have to do your standardized testing, like doing the MCAT and stuff like that. And, um, you know, it's pretty, pretty competitive process, uh, all around. Um, I went to an undergrad program at McMaster university called, um, a bachelor of health sciences. So it was a fairly competitive program to get into. And then when you were in the program, you were surrounded by a bunch of med school keeners. So kind of from the moment, you know, you step foot on the ground, everyone's talking about all the courses you need to take and all the volunteering you need to do and which labs are you going to work at and things like that. So, it was, it was a good program for getting into med school just because there was a lot of young young people that were really focused and knew what they wanted to do, mm-hmm. which is kind of hard in university, right? Like you definitely want to have a good time and you want to have fun and you don't want to waste those precious younger years. But if you want to get into med school, you also have to be pretty serious from the get-go. So it was a really good good balance of those, those things. And so um, this show is, is a lot about finances. So I'm curious to know, you know, as you're growing up, growing up in a small town, then getting, getting into to medical school, what were some lessons about money that you learned growing yeah. up? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. It's always been fairly well ingrained in me to like, you know, to, to do the saving thing and understanding the power of compound interest and stuff. So I, I worked some pretty funny jobs when I was in, in high school. I worked for a, uh, a furniture delivery store called Shepherd's Furniture. It was an awesome place to work. And uh, I actually worked for a portable toilet company, which is hilarious. Really? Yeah, so funny. But, uh, it, but any, all... any tip on you? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, but, you know, I, you'd always just save a bit of money and put it away. And I had a pretty good financial advisor who, again, was like a friend's parent to kind of help me with some investments earlier on in life, which was great. Um, but it's, it's pretty challenging. Like no matter how much you save or how much you work in, in summers and stuff like it, you know, you can't, you can't deal with the tuition. I think 
you know, five years before I went to med school, tuition was like 4,500 bucks a year, 5,000 bucks a year, mm-hmm. which is nothing. Right. And also compared to us schools, like it's nothing. Right. Mm-hmm. But then when I, I started going in they kind of deregulated the tuition. And so our tuition was like 17 grand or 20 grand a year, you know, plus your living expenses, you're looking at, you know, 30, 30 plus per year. Um, to, to do it. So there's no way that you're going to get through that. Either your parents are going to pay for it if you're wealthy. And if you're not wealthy, then you don't have any other options other than going into debt. So taking on big lines of credit. That's, that's, that's interesting that that is a Canadian thing. Cause I generally think of Canada as being socialized medicine. And so it's, it's interesting that you got in there, right. When things changed, when was this? It was about uh, the year 2003, around 2000 is when things started to change. Right. Hmm. And it's funny, like it is funny, right? People throw that term around like socialized medicine and, and you know, we, we, we pay for things socially, but if you think about the actual delivery of care, like, you know, you think about all the drugs that we use, like, you know, who came up with those, like, well, pharmaceutical companies and right. who provides the IV poles and who provides the pacemakers and who provides the synthetic valves and who provides, you know, the software that you use. It's like everything that we use to deliver healthcare is still very much private. You just have somebody picking up the the tab at the end of the day, which is the government. And even our hospitals are actually not-for-profit private institutions. So they're not like, it's not like the the UK where, you know, uh, they have the NHS and you're a doctor and you're you're, uh, an employee of the, you know, the state. Like I'm a private employee or a private contractor, really, I just get paid by the, the state, if that makes sense. So sure. It's like a, everything's Medicare essentially here in the yeah. U S yeah. 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 Be the equivalent of that, but you, you have certain, you have to deal with them. And I suppose you could, um, can people pay like privately for like additional care or, yeah, you know, they can. And so, I mean, there's always challenges with the government, right? In terms of what exactly is that additional care defined as, you know, Mm -hmm. like, does that count where you can jump the line? Not really now, but I think there's like an expanding, um, or there's a group of people that would like that very much to happen, kind of have more of like a, an Australian model where you have two parallel systems, but we're not, we're not there yet. And we have this Canada health act, which is kind of preventing that from going forward, but there are there are definitely cases cases in the you know in the Supreme Courts that are that are dealing with these things. Interesting. So, do you feel that like do Canadian doctors on average get paid less than their American colleagues? Like you're you're an internist, right? Yeah. So you know how how do salaries compare in Canada yeah. versus the U.S.? It's it's kind of all all over the map, really, right? Like so. <clears throat> For some specialties, you get paid more. So internists, uh, like geriatricians, for sure, you know, we make we make more in Canada. Some of the medical specialties do, but like, let's say you set up more of a business, right? Like people in the states are just more enterprising. So if you're setting up a large dialysis business in the states, or you're an orthopod, orthopedic surgeon, and you set up, you know, your private clinics and your ORs and stuff, you're definitely going to make way more in the states. Um, but there are a lot of specialties that actually do do better in Canada. So kind of depends on, on how enterprising you are and how you set up your practice. Like academic physicians, I think probably do better in, in Canada than they do in the States. Isn't that something I would not have guessed that that's, that's fascinating considering that. Um, I mean, still at, at the time you, you went through medical school, I mean, that was a lot of money, but I'm um, gosh, I look at a lot of us 
residents now, it's not uncommon for me to see $300,000 of student debt between I, it's insane. It's insane. Honestly, like, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how people are, are dealing with it. How hard do you think it is? You know, if there's, there's, there's some physicians listening that their kids want to get into medicine, how hard do you think it would be to get into medical school in Canada if you're from the U S it's, I think it's pretty hard. We, I haven't encountered that many people, um, that have gotten into to med school per se, but I mean, it's, it's definitely possible. I think they do hold, you know, most of their spots for Canadian students and allow some international students, but, but not a lot. It gets a little bit easier when you're, when you're looking at residency spots though. Um, like there's been a huge move before you'd never see graduates from like the Caribbean or Ireland or Australia. Mm. Um, you know, you'd never see people getting into residency here and now you're seeing quite a lot of people. So I think for residency coming in is, is a lot easier than it is to get into to medical school. But I, you know, I got to give that a caveat in that I'm not really that close anymore to like the admissions process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I do a lot with residents and stuff, but, um, but you know, that would be my guess, but it has been fascinating to see that. And, you know, some amazing trainees that I've come across and, and had the fortunate fortune of, uh, of, of teaching and they're just incredible. It doesn't matter if you're from Australia or Caribbean or US schools or Ireland. It's like, you know, there's some really good candidates that are, that are coming in now. Mm. And is, is residency, like let's say a pediatrician, is that usually three years still or how long is residency usually in Canada? General peds is about four years, but there's not a lot anymore. Like there's, there's movements like general internal medicine. You could still get away with, with doing four years, but most people are doing a five-year program. And, and in some cases they're moving to kind of like six years. So like mm -hmm. neurosurgery, I think is sure. six years. And if you wanted to be a cardiologist, it would be six years and stuff. And, and even then, because of some of the job pressures, um, more people are, are doing even additional training. So it's not good enough to be a cardiologist now. Like you have to be a cardiac intensivist or you have to be an electrophysiologist or uh, an interventionalist, right? Like mm. it's, it, it's getting a little bit tight for, for certain job prospects. So before you used to go to the community, like you wouldn't go to an academic center and you just walk up and, you know, set up your shingle and, and go. But now even more community jobs are looking for people that have kind of niches or like value added, uh, skill sets. And is, is residency there like here in the U S where you get paid a heck of a lot less than yeah. when you're practicing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's gotten a lot better over the years, I would say. Um, now like there are on-call stipends where it's like, we never had those, you know, like I think when I was a first year resident, I was making like 45 grand a year or something like that with no call stipends and you're working like 100, 120 hours a week, some weeks. And, you know, so it doesn't add up to very much money at the end of the day and you're kind of manage your debt load and stuff. So it's not, um, it's not that ideal of a situation, but things have gotten a lot better. You know, I talked to some of the residents that I, I was playing hockey with. Don't mean to be too much of a cl Canadian cliche. That, uh, <laughs> you know, moved it about it. I was playing my hockey with my, uh, my resident buddies and they were talking about kind of what they were getting paid. And I was like, well, that's quite a lot more than we got paid. And on top of that, they're getting kind of bonuses and stuff for uh, their on-call time. Interesting. Well, that's cool. That's good. Good to hear that. That uh, that's a little <clears throat> bit better. I think it's one of the great strategies here in America. To me, I mean, you you go through all that medical school and you end up with two hundred or three hundred thousand dollars in student debt. Now you're only getting paid fifty grand. I mean, 
it's pretty ridiculous in my opinion. You know, the other thing too, I kind of think the government's a bit short-sighted and payers in a lot of ways are short-sighted because I feel like if they just paid people a reasonable wage during residency, uh, people would be happier. They'd be more productive. They'd be less stressed while they were doing those things. And then when you get out on the other end, you're not like desperate to make money, right? You're not establishing this super high billing practice to like get your debt down. Cause like, once you've established that high billing side of things and you paid off your debt, like, do you think you're just going to start changing your behavior? Right. You know? So then you're going to like, you know, you do this high billing thing for however long it takes you to pay your, your debt off. And then you continue on because that's your established routine. And the payers are going to, you know, be paying a lot for those kind of types of behaviors for the rest of their, you know, that physician's career. And whether there's additional value on that, like, you know, you'll see people and they'll crank through tons and tons of patients, but maybe the quality might not be there exactly in the same way. So I think that's an interesting thing for kind of the, the train, the argument to increase residency salaries and decrease tuition, because you might actually be able to save money in the system in a long haul, but in the long, in the long run. But, uh, you know, that's just, that's just my own personal guess. There's no kind of science behind that. No, I'm with you. Well, I, I, I could talk about this kind of stuff for hours because I'm always interested in differences between cultures and communities, but I, I would love to shift the gear a little bit to um, you're, you're at a medical school, you're starting to practice and um, how long, I guess, were, were you always kind of entrepreneurial? You know, how, how did this current venture of making an, an EMR come all about? Well, it's funny. So me and my co-founder, Sam, like we joke about this now, but, uh, but we used to host these like Christmas parties and like Halloween parties and stuff when we were in residency, right? We'd, we'd rent out a hall and get a DJ and like have all of the residents from all the different specialties and some of the staff and some of the med students come out and, and we hosted it and like, we got it, you know, our alcohol license DJ and, you know, we're like, okay, well, hopefully we don't lose too much money on this. Right. But we thought it was a good fun thing to do anyway. So we were prepared for that. And then we kind of got to the other side and we actually made money. We're like, mm-hmm. what? Like, we had to do something that was like fun and build community and like make awesome memories. And we got paid to do it. We're like, that's, that's insane. And so I think that was a bit of a spark. We're like, oh, you can do things that you love and you're passionate about and you can, you know, change your community or change other things as well. And you could, you can make money by doing, by doing good. And so um, after we finished residency, we, we were doing inpatient medicine work a lot as like early staff and like, it's just terrible. We were dealing with paper charts at the time and like, you know, random Excel spreadsheets for trying to keep track of patient issues. And we're like, there's gotta be a better way for, to do this. And so we designed a software program and got some developers together and we, we built this application where you could track information uh, for all your patients. You could keep track of tasks that people needed to do. You could hand over seamlessly, you know, when people go from daytime to nighttime and nighttime to daytime or weekday to weekend, like every time those patients get passed off, there's an opportunity to lose information and for things to go wrong. And our platform got rid of all of those, those issues and saved people like an hour and a half per day and their documentation time. So we were pretty successful with this kind of first, first venture. Um, but dealing with hospitals is a little bit of a challenge, especially if you're a small company, there's lots of bureaucracy, there's lots of decision makers, 
And there, there, I'd say that's a huge difference in Canada versus the U.S., right, is like the appetite for risk and hospitals understanding return on investment. Like, I think that's one of the biggest differences, because even if we went, we went to hospitals and showed them the kind of data and stuff, they were a little bit hard to engage with because they're all interested in just dealing with big players like Epic or Cerner, all scripts and stuff like that. Right. So, um, so, you know, we, we decided to then pivot um, over to the outpatient space where we could go directly to physician decision makers and go into clinics. And Sam has always had a dream of, of having an outpatient EHR and I always thought it was a great idea. So we said, let's do it. So say 2017, we, you know, founded this, this new company and got our friend Rich Vandegreen um, on board, who's just a gem of a, a person, right? My co-founders are such awesome, awesome guys to work with. And, uh, and so we, you know, we started, I'd say 2018, we built a prototype 2019. We had a, a MVP where we could actually launch it and test it in real clinical practice. And then Last year was our major launch into, into the marketplace um, with a full-blown product and kind of marketing team and um, kind of more developers and uh, CFO. And so it was a really, really great, a great year. 2020 was an awesome time. And now let's take a moment for a quick commercial break. Individual physicians and practices use Empath IQ to tie their online reviews to their Google My Business page. We have made leaving a positive review a one-step process for your patients. It couldn't be any easier to manage your online reputation. Go to www.empathiq.io empathiq.io or call 858-375-5686 and mention financial freedom to receive two months free. And now back to the show. So tell me more about just getting started, right? I mean, you go from hosting parties and having a good time, making a little bit of money, um, for good causes, as well as, as having, having fun. Um, how did you even get started with this? Like, did you guys have some money saved up? Did you find kind of like venture capitalists, you know, walk me through that, that part. Of the yeah. Process. And I mean, it's an interesting kind of, it's an interesting evolution, right? So when we first started, we had no idea what we we're doing, right? Like we just had to start learning basics. So like, we didn't know how to develop software. We never designed interfaces. We didn't know about privacy or security. We didn't know about marketing. We didn't know about cash flow management. We didn't know about hiring devs. So we just started learning. And um, so it was a slow process, but I had a friend actually, a buddy from high school who was a developer who built out, you know, he was part of the initial company and he built out all the initial um, prototypes and stuff like that for for not for free, but he, I mean, he was a member of the company. So he had some inequity stake in the deal. And then if there were other small costs, we would pick that up over time. And then, um, you know, slowly that, that does move into feeling more comfortable, more confident. Once we'd actually done implementations at hospitals and done some pilots, like, you know, we proved to people that we weren't, um, you know, we weren't just kind of amateur hacks. Like, if you get through a security and privacy assessment at a hospital, that kind of suggests you're the real deal. 
And then once we got some initial early customers, that also starts to change people's minds. And so then when we went to the EHR space, we we're like, okay, well, you know, we took on some initial investment, the founders put in some money. And then we were also fortunate enough to get some non-dilutive capital through government grant programs. Mm. So, you know, there are innovation uh, and R&D programs here in, in Canada where you get access to this. So they kind of match you dollar for dollar or, you know, 50 cents on the dollar for specific projects that you come up with. Well, let, let um, me, let me interrupt you there just because if people aren't familiar with that term, because so many doctors have been to medical school, but they've never been a business school. So when you say non-dilutive capital, I think I know what that means, but tell us more. What, what does that mean specifically? Yeah. So, I mean, anytime, you know, if let's say I owned hundred percent of the company and then I want to get an investor to put money into that company, I'm going to have to sell some of that. So in order to get the cash into the company to use it for various purposes, let's say I sell 10% of the company for hundred thousand dollars. Well, I've got hundred thousand dollars that I'm going to use for operating expenses, but now I sold 10%. So my stock is now 90%, right? Yep. So that's a dilution. Um, you don't have as much stock as you did previous, or you have as much stock, but not as much percent ownership in the company. Whereas let's say, you know, okay, well, I sold 10% and I got a hundred thousand dollars. And now uh, I've got somebody who said they're going to match me one for one in a, in a program, then I've got $200,000 of operating expenses and I own 90% of the company instead of having to sell another 10% and go down to 80%, which dilutes my my pool a little bit further, if that makes sense. So it's always good to have the non-dilutive sources because that means you retain more of the ownership of the company. And you have to be mindful of that because every raise that you do, there's the potential for further dilution. Absolutely. No, great, great um, education point there and something that people understand, you know, as you're getting going, you know, I think I think of a lot of small businesses and certainly you have your own money you put into things. Maybe you go to family and friends, ask yeah. them for money. Um, at the same point, you're trying to do your regular day job, right? Cause you didn't quit your day job and haven't quit your day job. No, so absolutely. And go do this. I mean, that's the other interesting part of it is like kind of, you know, we, so we did a, a family and, and friends raise. It was, you know, less than, less than $500,000. Um, but it's really interesting to see the people that, believe in you just for who you are, because you don't really have a product yet and you're not making money yet. So it's honestly one of the um, most exhilarating and terrifying experiences when people are putting money in your pocket and, and now you have to deliver, right? It's like your friends and your family that have put their money on you. And so you take it very seriously, obviously. And at the same time, it's like, wow, these people really think quite highly of me um, to, to, you know, place a bet on my performance. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so with, with going through all of this, tell us about what's, what life is like for you now, you know, how much time are you able to spend practicing medicine? How much time are you spending helping to run the company? Walk us through kind of a month for you. What does that yeah. look like? Well, I mean, it's good. It's a great question. So I'm, I'm married and I have a couple of kids. I've got a five-year-old son and a three-year-old um, daughter. And so it's been quite busy because they've been young through this, this phase. And my wife and I do set very strict um, boundaries around what, you know, what we will let influence our kind of family life. Like we're very strict about that just because we, you know, we prioritize our family above everything. And so 
you know, I, I've had some mentors talk to me about work-life balance, not in terms of like a day or a week or even a month, but kind of over quarterly periods where it's like, you might have like super busy times for one month or two months, and you shouldn't be down on yourself or upset that you've shifted in one direction. You know, sometimes you're a little bit more stressed, just as long as you don't remain at that burnout stage for long periods of time and you take appropriate kind of breaks and kind of, you know, feed your soul and recharge your batteries and, you know, always be reflecting on what's important for you and stuff. So, um, it, and it, so it kind of mixes kind of week to week. Like sometimes I'll, I'll have like a week off where I'll just focus on, on the business side of things. And I'm a little bit fortunate in terms of geriatrics practice that, um, it's not like people are crashing in the ICU and I have to deal with them. It's like, it's a bit slower pace. And so I can kind of batch consults and batch seeing patients at different parts of the day. And then kind of deal with, um, deal with, uh, the business parts at various points of the day as well. And then, you know, I book specific times at night, uh, where we have meetings with team members and we do our development meetings and sales and stuff like that. And so it's pretty, it's, you know, it's full on for sure. Um, but it's really, it's really fun. It's really exciting. And, you know, when you watch a product grow from not very much at all to serving, you know, thousands of people across the country, like it's pretty, pretty great great feeling right now nice cool the one thing i was going to say too just like you know other sources of non-dilutive capital would be like you know bank loans and stuff like that right it's like it's a loan you have to pay it back um which you know can be good and and bad right like um with the investment side of things it's awesome because it kind of validates what you're doing not only to yourself but other potential future investors you know Mm -hmm. when people are saying this product's good or this company's good and other people have invested, it kind of gets people more interested to, to help you out as well. Well, and if the company does, does well, of course, you know, it's going to be that much more money in your own pocket. So ultimately it becomes cheaper using the bank money. 100%, 100%. So tell us about just more, a little bit more about the, the company and, and is it, do, are EMRs, because I'm not a physician, but I certainly talked to quite a few, are EMRs like, are there big differences between how you have to have it in Canada versus the US, for example? No, there's not. So, you know, we really focused on building a product that's simple, intuitive, and cost-effective. Like, it's amazing. Most of the legacy products that are out there, they're got you know, all sorts of weird colors happening on the screen. There's always too much information. You know, there's a thousand modules that have been built in by engineers because they thought it was a good idea, but they never decided to, you know, they never asked the physician, like, what do you do 98% of the time? And uh, let's design around that instead of let's design around every possible thing you can do. So, you know, when we, we, um, when, when we want you to log into the platform, we want you to feel good you know, feel like things are simple, feel like it's beautiful, kind of, we, we want to be like the, uh, you know, the, the Apple to, to EMR design in terms of, of those basic principles. And, you know, we want your experience day to day, instead of being frustrated all the time with your, your EMR, we want you to feel happy and good. And we've been able to, to deliver on all of those, those basic principles and I think that's what sets us apart. So like there are tons of EMRs in the U.S. market. It's a lot more fragmented. Inpatients, obviously, there are a couple big players that have 
the majority of the market share, but outpatient, it's like, there's so many. Mm. Um, but when we, when we look and see what's out there in the market, we're not that impressed by them. Um, and we think we can do better. And I think we have delivered on that so far. But with respect to the US versus Canada, like the only major, obviously um, the, uh, being compliant with HIPAA is slightly different than being compliant with, you know, PIPEDA, which is our kind of equivalent legislation or uh, provincial kind of health technology or health information or privacy law. It's like slightly different, but the biggest change is just units, you know, like the creatinine units or the glucose units are a little bit different, but that's about it. Oh, interesting. Um, well, what, uh, as we kind of wrap up, you know, what, what would you say to other physicians that want to be entrepreneurs that they, they kind of have something in them? What are some of the best pieces of business advice you can give to them? You know, um, just get started. Like, um, don't try and make everything perfect and, uh, don't try and, um, you know, make everything exactly the way you you want it or think it should be at the very end at the start like it's going to be a process and you need to get started and iterate and you're not going to know everything that you need to know when you start you have to make some mistakes or you actually need customers on the platform to figure out your own blind spots and so i think it's good to be mindful of like risks you take and the process that you're going through but um you know, you really have to start moving forward or you're never going to get anywhere. And um, mentorship is always a big thing. So finding people that have been through the process that have raised money or been successful entrepreneurs, I think that's always a good thing because they can help you avoid certain pitfalls, mm -hmm. but they're not going to get you all the way there. Like I had a bunch of mentor mentors that I like chatted with and all that stuff. And like, you don't know what it's like to raise money or, do a product implementation or build product until you actually do it. So it's pretty, you know, you just got to get going, put yourself out there and it will feel scary mm. for most people. Like, you know, it's not going to be like nothing's happening. It's like, you're going to feel exposed and you'll probably feel a bit vulnerable when you're putting yourself out there to that extent, right? Like oh, I raised money, I've got a product, this is awesome. But sometimes Early on, early on, especially you're like, well, is this just going to fail? And people are going to look at me like I'm a loser and I built something, but it sucked and it didn't make money or went bankrupt. But like, you can't think like that. You have to push those thoughts and ideas out and just focus on your day-to-day -day process and making that excellent. And then day by day, gradually, um, you know, week over week, month over month, and then finally year over year, you start noticing some really big progress and gains. And then that seems to accelerate. And it certainly gets a lot easier when, you know, checks start coming in and people are actually paying you for the product. Right. You feel, you feel validated and you're like, oh, we can go hire some more people now. And, oh, this means we can actually build faster and build better. And, wow, this is really, you know, it just gets to be more fun at that point. And I'm sure, you know, a fear that, that some people might have that are, that are listening right now are, well, what would my employer think? You know, could I lose my job? Right. with putting time and money and, and energy into it. How have you balanced that as an entrepreneur and, and employed physician? Yeah. I mean, we're a little bit um, 
like it's a little bit more, I think, liberal for me just because I'm a private contractor, right? And it's not the same. Like I don't sign a contract with the hospital for a certain amount of hours per week or a salary or anything like that. Like I'm part of some Facebook groups in the US where I'll see them negotiating their contracts and it's a lot more rigid. I think if you are going to be in this space, you're going to have to find employment that's a little bit more flexible in that regard, um, or that might be something you'd have to do. Good advice. Wonderful. And then finally, my, my final question for you, Rich, is what does, how would you know when you achieve financial freedom, given doing everything that you're doing right now? You know, I, I, I've kind of been reflecting on this lately, um, just because we're getting to this stage where things are obviously much, um, much better. But I, I think probably it's more, it's a more of a feeling of, of freedom and um, how much you're thinking or worried about your finances. But to be honest, like, I don't, I don't have a great I don't have a great answer for that because most of my sense of freedom has actually come more from like internal personal work and not being tied to my finances as um, a marker for well-being. It's kind of backwards in that sense. And that I'm like, I'm, I, I'm, my value is not tied to the amount of money I have in my bank account and it's not tied by the success. All I can control is my day-to-day process and being excellent at what I do. So I should focus on that. And, you know, as that's happened, it's like the, the financial side of things has actually become much easier and I ruminate on it less and I worry about it less. Um, and I, but, but at the same time, I, again, focusing on your process of investing on a regular basis and focusing on compounding interest and just making sure that your budget is reasonable and you're spending within your means. Um, I think that like, if you put the work in upfront, uh, both from like a personal well-being point of view and a financial point of view, then, then you can worry less about it in the long term. Great advice. I, I love that advice. I mean, it's kind of balancing both sides, right? You know, being responsible, but at the same time, not, not putting all, all of your self-worth with your financial well-being, because that can change, right? You know, that, that can change, especially as an entrepreneur on uh, the flip of a dime. So sometimes you can like, sometimes you can get in your own way. If you're caught up too much in your head, you worry too much and you just can't start moving forward and making plans and being bold, you know? And uh, I think that's important too. It's like, if you're worried too much about your money or your finances, you try and hold on too tightly to it. You don't take any risks ever with it. Then you won't come across those opportunities where, you know, it could be potentially game changing or, or life changing. And, the final thing though that I would say is like, this is different for everybody. I, I'm part of all these, you know, physician finance groups and we're all different, you know, and your risk tolerance is not the same as mine. Some people are very obsessive and compulsive about everything and they, they need to feel in control of everything. So, you know, I think freedom, both personally and financially, all, always starts with understanding yourself first you know, knowing who you are and what you are going to need um, out of your life. And then you set up your, you know, your work-life balance and your finances and all of that stuff based on who you are and understanding yourself. 
Wonderful. Good sentiments, Rich. And if people want to learn more about the EMR or reach out to you, tell us how they can learn more about, about you, about the company, and where they can ask yeah. more questions. That's awesome. So our website's you know, www.ariaehr.com. <clears throat> and uh, yeah, check us out on our website. We have forms where you could submit questions. Um, you can get a hold of me on LinkedIn. Um, so it's Rich, R-I-C-H, Stramco, S-Z-T-R-A-M-K-O. Reach out to me that way or through the forums. I'm always happy to provide demos to people, get people feedback, um, get people's feedback on the product. And we're definitely interested in rolling out to the U.S. So we have customers right now um, in Canada, um, but we've set up our company way, in a way that we are HIPAA compliant. And, you know, we take the privacy and security stuff very Seriously, so we just have to, you know, turn on some servers in the U.S. and we're we're good to go. So, if anybody's tired of the EHR, their EMR or EHR, and wants something that's simple, intuitive, cost-effective, and just looks great, takes the headache of out of day-to-day practice, then look me up for sure. I'd be happy to to provide a demo or get you started. All right, my friends, there you go. I'll try and link in Rich's LinkedIn profile and the website so you can check it out and, and plug away. Rich, thank you so much for being with us. Dave, it was an absolute uh, pleasure. You do a great job of interviewing. So keep up the good work and thanks so much for talking about these important topics. You bet. You bet. Well, thank you for being with us. And my friends, that wraps up another episode of the Freedom Formula for Physicians. And remember, remember to slash your debt, slash your taxes and live a liberated lifestyle.